Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 104. Before we get started with this week's episode, I need to send a very special thank you to everyone at Quail Ridge Country Club in Boynton Beach, Florida. I've been very fortunate to have a summer membership at Quail for a few years now, and the staff and members have been very supportive of this podcast. Last week, they surprised me with a very nice framed picture commemorating my first 100 episodes, and it's hanging inside the clubhouse. Very cool gesture, very humbling, and I can't thank everyone there enough for all of their kindness. If you want to see that picture, you know where to find it. Go to Instagram. We're there at the Back of the Range podcast. As always, your support is appreciated and your feedback is even better. So keep leaving reviews in Apple Podcasts. If you want to listen to any of our previous episodes, go to thebackoftherange.com. That's where you can find links to those, links to our social media channels, links to where you can buy one of our trucker hats, and there is more merch on the way. I mentioned last week that we're starting Free Towel Tuesdays. So every Tuesday on Instagram and Twitter, you'll see a post telling you what to do, some comments to make, you know, tag some friends. We'll send out some free towels. Just another way to spread the word and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. So on to this week's guest, Serge Hogue from Baltimore, Maryland. Now, Serge didn't mention this in this episode, but he can golf his ball. He's captured a handful of Maryland State Amateur titles, played collegiately at Towson University in the 90s. I'm telling you, we could fill up an entire episode talking some mid-am golf and sharing some stories. But instead, Serge and I talked about his day job. Now, you might be listening to this episode on your way to your job. Maybe you work in the corporate world or you own your own business. Whatever you do to make ends meet. Well, Serge just might be able to top it. Because Serge Hogue is a professional caddy that spends his winters at Seminole Golf Club and his summers at Pine Valley. So, how did I meet Serge and how the hell did this episode come to be? Well, as some of you know, I was incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity to spend a couple days at Pine Valley earlier this year. And yes, despite being able to play some decent golf myself from time to time, playing at Pine Valley can be quite intimidating for a first-timer. Thankfully, I met Serge on the first tee. He's been a caddy there for over a decade and knows arguably the greatest golf course like the back of his hand. While walking down the fairways, yes, I said fairways, of Pine Valley, we spoke a little bit about the podcast, who I've been able to interview in the past, and through our conversations and getting to know him, man, the wheels just started turning, and I'm thinking to myself, I gotta figure out a way to get Serge on this podcast. During this episode, he shared some great stories about his time looping at Pine Valley and Seminole, but he also shed some light on the greatness of the people at these clubs that sometimes gets overshadowed by the greatness of the courses themselves. We left tons of stories on the cutting room floor because, well, once Serge gets going, it's kind of hard to get him to stop. So if you like this episode, let me know because I think we might be able to get more out of Serge in the future. Special thanks to the people at Pine Valley and Seminole that helped make this episode possible. Really couldn't have done it without their help. So let's get started. Serge, you're at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. How are you, sir? I am splendid. I'm glad to be on your show, and uh, it was a good time chatting with you back in May, and I couldn't wait to get together with you. So, 
Well, it's be a good time. Absolutely. I'm so glad we can make this happen. And, uh, you know, I never thought I would utter the following words. Thanks to our friends at Pine Valley and Seminole, this episode is going to happen. I never thought I would ever say that in a sentence. Did you think we were going to be able to share some stories about Pine Valley and, and Seminole on a podcast today? It never crossed my mind until we met. And uh, then we got to talking about what you do. And I thought to myself, wow, this would be really cool if um, we could actually just get a little bit of exposure of both places on a good neutral level. And, um, but no, I didn't, I didn't think there was, it was going to be in the cards. And, uh, but I never really thought about talking about those places either. Right. So, you know, it's one of those things where I didn't know that your podcast was really so much out there until, you know, a little while ago. And, uh, it's, it's really started to take off. Well, uh, this is going to be a lot of fun before we start talking about Pine Valley and Seminole. Let's do a little bit of backtracking. Always do this with every single guest, a little bit of the history of how you get into the game and also how you got into caddying. I know you've been caddying for over 20 years, but let's talk a little about you playing the game. Where'd you grow up? How'd you get into the game of golf? I grew up in Baltimore, uh, Baltimore County, Northeast Baltimore County, Parkville area, Towson somewhat. And, um, my grandmother got me into the game initially. And started playing some tournaments when I was about nine or ten years old. Just got hooked on it. Drove my parents crazy. <laughs> they drove me. They drove me everywhere. You know, take me to this tournament, take me to that tournament. And um, after a while, I found myself on a golf team in high school called Calvert Hall, which is one of the. I guess there's probably about nine or ten private high schools in Baltimore that have some pretty good teams, and uh, those guys were one of them. And very well-known school also for other sports besides golf. So played in college uh, at. Towson after that, but uh, pretty much grew up a immunity course player as far as I was never remember never remembered a private course you know private course or anything like that yeah and um, but the game just grabbed me by the heart and uh, never really let go and you still play and you still play a lot of amateur stuff a lot of mid amateur stuff I mean how do you uh, balance the the job of I mean you're always around golf so do you have to shut your caddy brain off for a while to go play or how does that how does that kind of help you with? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I need my caddy brain as much as possible when I play. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where when you grow up playing competitive golf, you never really want to lose it. So I've got my amateur status back two different times. The last time I got it back was 2006. Um, I was a teacher for a little while in 2005, but you never want to lose that competitive juice, that competitive feeling that you get when you walk off the 18th green, you know, and that you just, put your entire heart and soul out there for four and a half hours. Yeah. And, um, and whether it's for money or not for money, your number still goes up on that board. And that's one of the things that, you know, you really want to grind over every shot and, you know, you don't, you don't let up until the 18th holes over, you know, and don't ever pack it in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so. sure you pass a lot of that on to the people that you loop for, uh, at, at these clubs. And, and I, as I said, you've been catting for over 20 years um so talk to me uh, does it feel like 20 years or feel like a little bit more than that it was a blink of an eye man a total blink of an eye so your first loop uh is this was this pretty much start of your i mean did, did caddying and playing kind of all kind of mesh together as a kid when did you start caddying just for extra bucks and then maybe when did you start caddying for you know for a profession the first loop i ever had was april of 1996 okay and it was at Caves Valley in Baltimore. Um, Caves is probably one of the best courses in Baltimore besides the East Course at uh, Baltimore Country Club. Uh, Mr. Tom Fazio, he constructed it in 1991. And um, 
it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. And the people there, I mean, I worked there for almost 17 years and uh, the head pro there at Dennis Satisher and the Academy Master Brian Hubeck, you know, they, they treated me like gold for, you know, for the entire time. So, um, but my first loop there was a guy named George Shorb from York, Pennsylvania. And he had, um, green ping bag, little skinny ping bag and founders clubs, irons and a oh. Wilson fire stick shaft the driver. Oh my gosh. I, you're bringing me back to my, to, to when I started the game and like in, in playing in the, you know, eighties and nineties founders club. I have not heard and fire stick. I remember exactly what that looks like. Yeah. It was a little small head and his, he had a uh, ping answer to bronze putter. <laughs> okay. So your memory's decent Serge. Yeah. That was 23 years ago, but you know, the guy had a good swing. He was really friendly. And one of those things where, you know, you just stamp in your head, you don't forget your first loop somewhere. Okay. So, so. You, you've gone on and, and, you know, we're going to get into all the, some of the little uh, anecdotes and stories about the clubs, but let's, let's ask just some generic caddy questions that maybe will lead us into some fun stories. The first, Oh boy. I know. But when you when when you get the bag, first thing off, you get the bag, and you meet the guy, you meet the woman that you're catting for. What are some of the things you're looking for right away, or some of the things you might see right away that tell you what kind of a day you have ahead of you? Well, the first thing I do is count the golf clubs because sometimes they have more than fourteen, and if they do, there might be one in there that you know came from somewhere else that they didn't know about. Sure. So that's. But if you find an extra club in their bag that they didn't know about, they know that you're pretty much on top of it right away, okay. which is a good sign. Um, but little things like, you know, if you see if you see a uh, ball retriever in there, watch out. <laughs> watch out. You know, um, if a guy has a set of old blades that, you know, have a, a big wear spot right in the center then you're probably going to have a fun day of just golf conversation with the guy because he's been doing it for a while. You've heard of a George Lowe wizard? Absolutely. So one of my players had a George Lowe wizard about three months ago, and I freaked out. And now this is basically a, I mean, George Lowe, 1950s, 1960s. This is just a basically just a, a blade putter. No frills, yes. no nothing. I'm assuming there's the, all, the, the old leather grip is on there still. It was, it's the kind that Jack Nicholas used to win a bunch of tournaments. But the problem was when I took a picture of it, I put it up on Facebook and my, my golf nerd friends did some research and it was not an original. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I was duped. Um, but uh, just one of those, the kind of people that, that show up there, um, you know, have the same kind of background as far as love that you do. So you may not learn, you know, say a thing about a guy until four or five holes, you know, two, three days in, but might be very important as far as, you know, you never knew where they played college golf and you might have a friend of yours that, that played with them, you know. Now you've seen it all, uh, I would imagine, in your years of caddying. Can you think of a time that you're really surprised where you see a bag, you see a setup that you're just like, oh man, another one of these, oh, just it's just going to be a, a, a day. And then you're just kind of shocked and you're like, oh, wow, I completely didn't – I didn't call this right at all. I refuse to make assumptions about what's going to happen when I see the golf bag because everybody is so different. It's unbelievable. And some people that you may see a terrible-looking golf bag could be one of the coolest people you'll ever meet. And if you 
if you strike them a chance to show their true colors just because of how you judge what their golf bag look like, well, then you're you're selling yourself short because okay. there's a lot of awesome people out there, and, and a lot of them play golf, and I've met quite a few of them. <laughs> you caddy for members quite often, and you, you know guys that you know, guys that you see numerous times, you get to know their games, you get to know their tendencies, their distances, their yardages. But I'm just curious, as a, as a guest like myself, you know, how, how do you acclimate or how do you learn as much as you can, as quickly as you can about someone's game and then caddy for them and, and you know, show them a great time and, and do the best you can for them? How do you pick that up as quickly as possible? Within the first couple of holes, usually I'll know whether you hit the ball longer or shorter than I do. So that's somewhat of a barometer, whereas like the hole number three, that, that, that par three down the hill that you played yeah. at Pine Valley. Yeah. Um, usually by then, I'll know whether or not, say a guy gets the tweener between a five and a six iron. I'll know it's pretty much by the time of the third hole, just by, you know, the way you talk sometimes, how, how crisply you've hit your shots, whether the ball stays in the air for a good amount of time, or, you know, may, maybe it just dies real quick. Um, so you have to be somewhat adaptable and you also have to gamble a little bit because you may have a tweener with a guy and you may take the short one because you think, you know, he's got enough skill to be able to hit it flush every time. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe you're a little scared. Maybe you give him the big one and then he flushes it and knocks it over the green. Well, you know, that's a learning point right there. <laughs> you know? and, and, um, and that might not be, that might not go well for you at the end of the day. Well, basically all the players know is that you're giving your best. And right. if, if, if you do all the mechanics the proper way, um, those guys are responsible for the shot that they hit at the end of the day. That's, that's one of the, you know, solaces that we have as professional caddies that we know that we're not the entire reason why the ball went into the woods. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, no, granted there's, there's people that are holding on to the golf club that would love to say that we are, <laughs> but you know, um, responsibility has to start somewhere. So this might be a dumb question, but I've asked many in, in my time on this podcast, but do you want the single digit handicapper that comes out to this, to these clubs that think they're going to shoot their usual 76 and be able to go back and, you know, tell their friends that, Hey, I, sh I, 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 I shot in the seventies at, at Seminole, or I, I did this, I did that. Do you want that guy that's going to kind of be in the fairway playing well, or do you want the 15 handicapper that is, that's going to struggle from time to time, but kind of has the low expectations and is just kind of walking around like they're in, you know, they're in, uh, uh, you know, they're in heaven the whole time. Like, do you, who, who's your ideal bag of the guest? My ideal bag is a guy with a high golf IQ, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be a good or a bad player. Okay. Um, it's so got explain, to do with, yeah, explain that. It's got to do with, with speed of play and friendliness and um, the ability to be a part of the group and not slow everybody down because you may be a really good player and you just play slow golf. You know what I mean? That's, I mean, I'd much rather have a, 15 that knew how to get over the ball and take a swing and keep moving than I would a seven who thinks the world's going to end if he hits a you know, a shot a little bit skinny. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, and actually I've had guys that were, that were chopping the ball all over the place. Oh God, it was terrible last year. And we're going up 13 fairway. He goes, man, I'll bet you wish you had a bunch of scratch golfers today, huh? 
And I said, guys, no way. You are awesome. The member that you have is awesome. And we judge a lot of, you know, what goes on throughout the day is who do the members bring as far as people? Right. And, you know, that's really my largest concern. Yes, I want them to play as well as they possibly can, but I also want them to enjoy their time there. And that means patience from me, (laughs) you know. You have these members that are bringing these guests out, and you know this isn't just playing at some club. They're coming out to Pine Valley. They're coming out to Seminole. These are the clubs that everyone wants to have just one shot in their life to play at. So, you know, the the I would imagine the members feeling a little bit of pressure to make sure the day goes well. You know, obviously you can't control the weather, but you want to have a nice day out there. And then you, you're you're representing the member. You're representing the club. Your job is to make sure someone basically has one of the most memorable rounds of golf in their life. Absolutely. And the job is fun every single day because you get people that have never been there before and they're they're somewhat nervous. And it's fun to try to get them to calm down and let them at ease by the fact that you are at ease. You know, your right. your actions can really dictate how comfortable they are, you know. So you know, you don't want to be there's there's some people out there that caddies not not necessarily at Pine Valley or Seminole, but there's some caddies that that they may sense a disturbance say early in the day and just carry that throughout the day and nobody has any fun. You know. Yeah. But the professional attitude of the two places that I work, um, you get you get like the best they've got every day until that bell rings. The members are great, the guests are great, but the 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 employees, the guys you work around and the staff that's that's running the show at both places, I mean, it makes you want to come back. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about Pine Valley and Seminole in depth, but I, I got to ask you, you know, we're, we're not going to, you know, we're, we're not going to drop specific names quite yet, but I'm sure <laughs> you can at least come up with one story or one memory of a guest that for whatever reason just couldn't couldn't relax or couldn't get comfortable with the fact of where they were playing golf and what they were surrounded by. I mean, was there just one guy you couldn't reach? You couldn't just get your arms around to say, Hey, it's just golf, buddy. There's plenty of those guys that they look more East to West than they do North to South. Okay. So they're, so, <laughs> you know? okay. So they're not looking where the hole is. They're looking at all the stuff that's going to grab their ball before it gets to the hole. <laughs> they're looking around going, Oh man. Well, they're, they're more in awe of where they are too. It's kind of neat to like, you know, you're almost like, Hey man, snap out of it a little bit. You know, the width of the fairways is huge at Pine Valley, but the trees are very close to the fairways. Gotcha. So it has an appearance of, I mean, I just thought of it. It seems like a, like it's a wide claustrophobia. I mean, it's very friendly fairways and big greens, but when you have the trees that loom that close to the fairways, people that aren't used to playing in that type of a setting, they get a little weirded out, you know? Yeah, there's been <laughs> – there was a guy last year who – remember the, the little house where you get the other drinks for number 8 and number 12? I remember. I do. <laughs> there was one of the guests last year who he was, you know, somewhat nervous about the day. So he walked into one of the doorways. There's – two entrances into it, if you can remember. Yeah. One is near number eight, one is near number 12. Well, him and his group went in there. The other three guys in the group left to walk down number eight, and he walked out of the other entranceway, and then he walked down number 12. He got, lost. Of, he got lost. Instead of instead of number eight. 
but the beauty of it was the group that was going down number 12, they all were the same height guys, and he thought it was them. Oh, no. But, <laughs> but what he didn't know was Peyton Manning was in that group going down <laughs> number 12. Okay, so let me see if I can recap this. <laughs> this, this guy goes into he goes into the, into the halfway house, so to speak, at, at 8. Yes. Thinks he's going back down 8 after he gets his drink. Ends up going down 12, so he's on the wrong golf hole. Thinks he sees his friends. <laughs> And not only are they not his friends, one of them is Peyton Manning. <laughs> you cannot make this up. So the thing is, he's he's already walked a good 200 yards away from the – he walked back towards a T-box. Right. So he didn't see his players for like a hole in a head, almost two holes. <laughs> okay. And then when he comes back, what does he say? I mean, first of all, tell me what he says when he comes back. Well, they, you know, they gave him a bunch of, a bunch of, you know, lip about it and everything. Sure. But when he came back to play golf this year, they, they made sure that, w that they locked the other door. <laughs> so, so he couldn't walk out the other way to work 12 again. It'd be a lot funnier if the group actually all slipped on Peyton Manning jerseys after he went in there and then just started walking down the fairway. <laughs> I'm sure that the group going down 12 got quite a shock when they, when they ended up with a five ball. I, I'm sure they were. So like, hey man, you guys, you guys need a fifth. I mean, hey, you know. <laughs> I would imagine but, fivesomes at Pine Valley don't exactly exist, but that's that's another yeah. that's another story. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about you know it's one thing to have this you have this great amateur and professional life as a player, then you start caddying, and you know there's people that caddy at clubs all over. There's people that caddy at St Andrews and they you know, Sage Valley and Pine Valley. People there's caddies all over the place in the Northeast and all over the country. Um, how does, how did it happen for you that you came to work at Pine Valley? The cultivation of an old relationship that I've built starting at Caves Valley in, in the late nineties. Okay. The, uh, the caddy master at Pine Valley now used to work at Seminole as one of the assistant caddy masters. And, um, I contacted him in 2010. I was in the insurance business and I wanted to come down to work for a little bit in the, uh, in the winter time for about a month down there. So. He found some space for me in March of 2010, and um, I wasn't planning on coming back. I was coaching a high school golf team called John Carroll, and uh, we used to play against Coward Hall where I went to school, which was great. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I used to wear red and gold golf shoes to the, to the Coward Hall match. My kids hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we met at Caves Valley in 98, and I called him and he said, come on down in 2010. So I came back to Baltimore in the end of April, so at the end of March, and uh, the caddy master then had said to me, my friend was one of the assistant caddy masters, so the main caddy master said to me, listen, if you want to come back next season, we have a spot open for you. I wasn't necessarily planning on coming back, but I ended up coming back um, to try it out for the next season of 2011, and um, it was one of the best work and life experiences I've ever had down there, or anywhere. You know, in a, in a six month span. Sure. So when I got finished, the caddy master said, um, "You know, do you want to come back next year?" And I said, "I would love to." And they keep asking me back, and I keep coming. I mean, people say to me, "You know, what do you like better, Pine Valley or Seminole?" It's it's impossible to answer that question because it's it's like, what do you like more, wheat or rye? I mean, yeah, they're they're both phenomenal places. They both have their own little little pieces of them that make it great um the main piece of both places are the people 
you can't find those those kind of members and guests that come through there at any other club. I don't care where you go. The golf courses, you know, bring the people there, but the people make the places. That's for sure. Yeah, they've both been at the top of the list, along with Augusta National and just other courses. I mean, everyone has their top ten. You know, you've had to do so much to kind of make these these players comfortable. But what about you learning the course? Um, you know, they have one day. They're leaning on you to, you know, get them around and and help them navigate, whether it's Pine Valley or Seminole. But let's let's start with Pine Valley. Then then I'll ask you a little bit more about Seminole. But but how did how you know how long did it take you to really feel that you were experienced enough and and knew everything you need to know about that club, or is your or is it just an ongoing education? So it's an ongoing education. Number one, green and uh, sixteen green will forever be a mystery to me at Pine Valley. Um, and you can you'll probably hear that from guys that have been working there 30, 40 years. I mean, it's one of those things where it may break four or five times and you can't really explain that to somebody within, within reason. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you just try to rely on, on what history that you've seen. And what, what I really like to do, do you, when you hit a putt, I honestly forgot, do you line the ball up with a line? Uh, I line it up with a line on, on, you know, probably relatively shorter putts. Um, you know, maybe, Maybe something that I that I really feel that I, I have a very good chance of making. So maybe like a ten to fifteen footer, but maybe you know out of a out of convenience, anything really longer than that. That's more of a lag putt. I I sometimes do the line, but I'm not religious about it. No. Yeah, just just kind of go straight away. You can kind of feel it in there, kind of thing. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, gotcha. Well, the reason I ask is because when I caddy for people, I can tell them where it is near the hole, point to spots in between the hole. You know, here's your highest point. Let's stay about a cup, but you know, beneath that. But the people that put a line on the ball, I really have an easy time reading putts for them because it's the same thing that I do. Okay. And when I get up over the ball, I know immediately whether or not that thing's lined up right. I see. Okay. So I'd, I'd rather get up over it and say, yes, that's good. Let's go. And, and what about like, I think we've spoken before about the differences between Pine Valley and Seminole. And I think you mentioned that, wind is much more of an issue at Seminole than Pine Valley. So what is Pine Valley's, you know, for people that think they know the course, that, that you know, we spoke about the fairways, what's Pine Valley's biggest defense or the most intimidating aspect of that golf course for people that come in for the first time? Well, number one, each one of the drives has to fly in the air for sometimes at least, say, 180 yards. Okay. And we're talking about number one, number two, Number four, I mean, number five, six, number eight, and number 11, not so much. Yeah, it's a it's a landing area golf course. I think one of the members I heard years ago said it is one of the first inland landing area golf courses. So you have to have a decent shot in the air just to play the golf course off the tee. The greens are pretty big, but they're kind of set up in quadrants of sorts. Where if you hit the ball into the left quadrant of the, you know, of the where the pin is, you're going to have a much easier time. But other than that, you're going to have to get over, you know, some some pretty heavy uh, undulations to operate on. Yeah. But the beauty of it is, is the course wasn't all designed by the same guy. Of course. Um, George Crump he designed one through eleven, and then. 12, 13, 14, 15 was designed by 
Tony Hanst, Travis, Harry Maxwell. I mean, George Thomas. He would gather little, you know, little bits and thoughts from all those guys when he was still alive. But after he died, I mean, they they wanted to make this place into, you know, what he was trying to make it into. Of course. And um, they they knocked it out of the park. I mean, it stinks that that the way the handicap systems go on scorecards is that one, three, five, you know, all the odd numbers are on the front nine. So the hardest hole on the golf course is usually set up for the front nine. But the hardest hole on that golf course is on the back nine. It's the 15th hole. But it's number two because all the even numbers are on the back nine of all the scorecards. Gotcha. It's, I don't know, there's only two par fives, and it's one and two on the handicaps and the scorecards, which if you look at every golf course out there, you may never, ever see that. It's such a difficult course, and it's such intimidating. And you, I think you've told me before that that's more of a match play course than a stroke play course. It is. I mean, it can really throw you for a loop if you're trying to put up a good number and you hit the ball a little bit wayward. You have to chip out so many times that you start to get a little antsy and you start to try, you know, start to press and then, then up comes the big number. So you've been there, you've, you've been caddying for, for all of these members learning the club. And you just said that it's more of a match play golf course. So I'm sure there are some guys that want you on their bag when they got a little bit of a grudge match against another member. Uh, what's kind of one of the favorite maybe loops that you get where, you know, it's you and your guy against the other guy and his caddy. Well, the best thing I could do as far as like talk about an, a scenario like that is um, there's a thing called a called knockout matches, and a lot of clubs have them where they they do a they do a tournament during the beginning of the season, and then they they get a bracket um, put together for the remainder of the season, somewhat like the NCAA uh, basketball pool. So every Saturday there will be a knockout match between, you know, you and I will play against each other. And then, you know, if I win, then I'll go on the next week. So this match goes on for the entire season. Okay. So this year I got to caddy in the finals of the knockout match. And there's not really, there are regular caddies that go with guys, you know, regular basis as far as, you know, the player caddy tandem kind of thing. Sure, sure. But um, relative to those matches, you know, the caddy master has complete autonomy as to who he puts with who. And we're all that good that he can close his eyes and put any caddy he wants to on whatever loop and not be scared one bit. Gotcha. It's it's a huge luxury for, for a caddy master to have an entire group of studs. And that's pretty much what they have at Seminole and Pine Valley. So, you know, there's not like, there's no gambling that goes on, like you know, huge money matches. People yeah. are like how much, how much money do they, you know, play for at Pine Valley? I'm like, no, well, no. that's not really what it's about, you know. They, these people love the game of golf, and they're bringing their most adored guests in in, in life with them. It's it's those smaller clubs with all you know with all the hotshot guys who who, you know, they um they think that playing for a large amount of money is going to make them into somebody when they drive home, you know. It sounds like the members were like that when they got there, and they'll be like that when they leave. It doesn't really matter what changes hands, you know, in the uh, in the grill room. No, no. I mean, it's, there's there's plenty of stories about one guy that'll say, "Hey, what do you want to play for?" And then the other guy says, "Well, how about this? 
Let me know what you're worth, and we'll flip for that, and then I'll play you for twenty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, that's that's all that's all people need to know. Um, that story's out there. I mean, it's not it's not even a Pine Valley or Seminole story. It's just a golf story. You know, there's one thing I want to let you know about, which I thought was really really cool. Last week I was at a party around around the lake here, which kind of is what you what you drive around to get to Pine Valley, and um little bonfire going on. We're playing some, some beanbag or cornhole, whatever you want to call it. And there's a guy named Charlie that I'm talking to. Okay. And he's an old dude. He's probably in his, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm getting there, but he's probably in his late sixties, uh, something like that. Mid sixties. So we start to talk and he's, he's kicking my ass. And I go, uh, you from around here? He goes, yeah, I'm from Pine Hill. I said, uh, you ever county of Pine Valley? He goes, yeah, I worked there for 25 years. I'm like, wow. Right. And he goes, you want to hear a story? I'm like, I love it. Yeah, give it to me. He said he was running from the police one one day when he was a kid. He was about 12 or 13, he said. Okay. And they were running through Pine Hill. They ran into the fence or the property line of Pine Valley, jumped over the fence and kept on running. And they found themselves on hole number two in the fairway. And this is way back before it was a borough. It was still like just a private piece of land. Yeah. So there was a security guy who was riding around and he found those him and his buddy, Charlie's buddy. And he said to the boys, he goes, Hey, are you two trying to find the caddy shack? And they went, uh, yeah. Wow. So within a week he was caddying at Pine Valley and worked there for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> all, all because he was running from the cops and he jumped over the fence. I mean, come on. The magic of Pine Valley is the safest place That's- on earth. Apparently. Amen, brother. Well, before we talk about Seminole, which I know you have a, a lot of love and admiration for as well, um, I want to ask you a couple questions, you know, about catting for the members. But, you know, once a year, they actually do open up uh, Pine Valley to the public, and that's at the Crump Cup. So this is one of the most um, exclusive uh, mid-amateur, senior amateur tournaments in the country. They open up the, the course on, on Sunday to the public that really – I don't know if they're there really to watch golf or they just want to see the place. So I know you're on the bag of one of our former guests, uh, you know, a former U.S. mid-amateur champion, former Walker Cupper, our our buddy Scott Harvey. Um, So talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, getting hooked up with with Harv and what it's like catting in the Crump Cup compared to just a regular old day at Pine Valley. Well, first of all, um, Scott's one of my most adored people on the planet. Um, I'm not sure how you can have a heart of gold and a heart of a lion at the same time, but he's got both. That's for sure. I've seen it. Um, to to give you some background on Harvey, as far as you know, before we start talking about the the Crump Cup this year or the, or the previous years, um, we met in 2012 for the first time at the Coleman at uh, at Seminole, which is a, another large amateur invitational. Uh, national amateur invitational event it's all stroke play it's three days at the end of april down there yeah so we can together and see 12 13 14 15 16 in 2017 he won the coleman for the first time and um that season i was pretty much out the entire season from with a broken neck and broken ribs and torn spleen two punctured lungs i was in a boat accident Actually, the boat accident was was three years ago yesterday. Oh wow! 
yeah, October 28th, it was a Friday night. It was at Southern Pines. I should be a dead man, so um, I'm lucky to be talking to you right now. Besides all that, <laughs> Scott won the Coleman in 17, and um, he had won the U.S. Mid-Am two years before that. And the Coleman was, was the most important tournament for him to win in life because his dad won the event in 94, and um, I think once before that. So it was very, very emotional. You know, he had a four-shot lead. You know, he almost coughed it up. Yeah, I was more nervous at that moment than I've ever been playing a tournament. So that gave you the enormity of, of where I was with him. This year, he won the Coleman again by uh, one one shot within the last two holes. He caught Andy Schoenbaum, and um, you know he was he was positive the entire the entire back nine. He was so positive. He was down by two shots like the whole time and didn't care. You know, he was just, you know, you know, I tell him stupid jokes on the way to the ball and kind of keep him late. And then about 40 yards in, you know, we go golf. So this year at, at the Crump, we get into match play. It's it's 36 holes of stroke play, 18 one day, 18 the next day to get into match play. Yep. And they do, you know, first flight, second flight, third flight, championship flight, all that stuff. So he gets in and the two previous years he lost to Geronimo Estevé. I know Geronimo. Awesome guy. <laughs> <laughs> Indian Creek guy, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, very good dude. So anyway, Geronimo played great a couple years ago, beat the beat the pants off of Scott, you know, he went home early. And then last year we drew Stuart Hagstad in the first round. If you're an amateur golfer, he's he's just about a professional. And, you know, as far as a man, you love playing golf with him, but as far as as far as you playing against him, you know, he's not the guy you want to see in the first round. No. So Scott, you know, put up a good fight and then Stuart beat him and I think sixteen, seventeen holes. Something like that. So he had never won a match in in the Crump until this year. Because he's running up against buzz saws. <laughs> right. I mean, but that's what you get when you play when you play at these, these events. I mean, you get the best amateurs in the world. Yeah. So um, you know, we get into match play this year, win a couple matches, and then um, we ran into Michael Muir, who just uh, played fantastic. Man, I mean, he was. You were going to have to go beat that guy that you know that day that's for sure he brought everything he had but he knew he was playing scott too so he wasn't gonna leave anything on the table either he's just so easy to caddy for scott is because we've we've been with each other for a good amount of time and uh like <laughs> on day one of the qualifying we had a little bit of a, of a club issue and he he came back to get the seven iron after he was over the six for, for quite a while because he didn't like the tone of how we were operating as far as what was being said, you know, he could tell that I wasn't happy with it. So the next day we're on hole number three and I've got one of the other players standing right next to me. And we had the exact same type transmission of, of conversation about the club. And I whispered to the guy next to me, I said, watch, he's coming back. And he was almost about to pull the trigger and he stands up and he comes back to get the seven iron. And I was like, Oh my God, he came back for me. Oh my God. But it's, it's those parts of caddying. I and mean, if you're going to ask, you know, the question about what is it about caddying that, that makes it, that makes you want to come back. It's those little moments that, um, you have between your players, whether they're new to you, whether they're old to you, they know that you're in the box with them and you really care about what's going on enough 
to where they can sense that that they might have their own club in hand. So that's what basically keeps you coming back year after year. Yeah, yeah. That there's a there's a certain juice and and fire to being a part of someone's good day. Really, I've gone to places and I've had a caddy, and I'm like, man, that guy really made my day today. Yeah, and. I'm not trying to be that guy every single day. I'm just myself. And, you know, I'm fun. I'm jovial. I tell terrible jokes. And um, well, we're going to let you tell some at the end of this episode. Don't you worry. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. You're going to be put on the spot. <laughs> well, I don't care. I'm, <laughs> I'm over sounding stupid. So um, let's, <laughs> so, uh, let me ask you, you, you know, let's transition down south. Let's go. To, let's talk about Seminole. Um, because okay. I don't want Seminole to feel jealous that, you know, Pine Valley's getting more of the pub on this episode, you know? But, <laughs> um, oh, so, so talk to me a little bit about, you know, you, you get into Pine Valley, who's got a better, I mean, how do you exceed that job or how do you add on to that dream scenario? Yeah. I'll just go ahead and add Seminole to the plate too. So you're bouncing back and forth. How did Seminole come to be? That came about. Before Pine Valley, I got to my, my opening year at Seminole was 2011. Okay. And my opening year at Pine Valley was 2014. So I was going back and forth from Caves Valley to Seminole for three years before I went up to Pine Valley. Oh, okay, okay. But my connection to Pine Valley and Sem- and uh, Seminole was the same as far as the caddy master was the assistant caddy master at uh, Seminole, who's now the full-time caddy master at Pine Valley. Okay, so you start there in 2011, but that wasn't your first experience canning at Seminole, was it? No, I was there for a month in 2010 in March. Okay, and um, number uh, loop number one, I had a uh, a lady, and uh, it was a one bag thing, and my uh, my friend now that that I caddy with, he was on the loop, kind of a spy loop. He's been there for let's see, he's 30. Six and he's been there for twenty three years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, he was on the loop, and the caddy master was kind of you know putting me on the loop with him, kind of a three ball, give me one bag, you know, see how I was or whatever. So the assistant caddy master who brought me in there in the first place, he was the one who was in charge of who was going to be caddying for who in the following days. Uh, pro member tournament which goes on every year at Seminole. this is the pro member on the monday after the honda classic exactly and it was probably march 2 march 3 of, of 2010 something like that okay so um so i get through caddying my first day there i was you know had a great time and there's a there's a sheet that's on the uh that's on the door of the caddy room and it's got a list of all the players and then right next to that is what caddy's names are going to be for players so I'm scrolling down and I look and I've got, uh, I had Craig Harmon, who was uh, Butch Harmon's brother. Okay. Right? And the son of Claude Harmon, who was a pro at Seminole. So then his member is a certain gentleman. And then I look and um, there's another member. And then there's Arnold Palmer's name. Recognize that one. Uh, so you're telling me like you're not even into double digit loops <laughs> yet. And you're in the same group as Arnold Palmer at Seminole. Pinch me, pinch me. Can you remember anything about that day? That's a dumb question. I'm just, I'm just, oh, I'm, just so, I, I'm just softballing that one to you. So I can, I've got three good ones. Hey, we tell stories here, man. First and foremost, he won the Eastern Open at Mount Pleasant in 19, 
56. And um, that's where I've spent my entire childhood. Um, won the Maryland Amateur Stroke Play there. And it, it has a very special, special place in my heart. So when I got to see him, I was like, oh, man, maybe we can talk about Mount Pleasant, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we never really got to chat until hole number six. Everybody was was on the far left side. And for some reason, it was just him and I walking down the fairway. And I was, I was like, oh, boy. And I'm like, here we go. I said, Mr. Palmer, I'm, I'm not sure if we quite, you know, met uh, properly before. My name is Serge Hogue. I'm from Baltimore. I grew up at a golf course where you won the Eastern Open called Mount Pleasant. And he looked at me and he went, Mount Pleasant? I'm like, yes, sir. And he goes, is this 17th hole still a par three there? And I just about welled up and started crying right there because for a guy that's, that's I mean, he was 80 years old back then. Yeah. Um, the memory of those guys is just astonishing. And when we shook hands, his hands are like a 1920s baseball man. They're huge. And when we shook hands, he held on. You know, like the proper cadence of like the timing of when she yeah. you know, shakes him with his hand. Hey, man, how are you? Give it a couple of good shakes and break free. Right? right. For some reason, he seemed to hold on longer than than normal or I expected. And I was I was a little weirded out. Like I was almost like. Hey man, could I have my hand back? Uh-huh. <laughs> but I didn't want to let go either because I was like, "It's Arnold Palmer." Exactly, exactly. So anyway, very, very obviously, you know, friendly man. Great little conversation there. So on hole number seven, he had a long way to hit the ball on the green, and it was over this pond. And I could tell there was no chance he was going to get over. I mean, ninety-nine percent of the people that play there couldn't get over either. So it didn't matter. Well, I looked over and I saw him with a three wood in his hand and he knocked it right in the middle of the pond. And, you know, I'm kind of a smart ass. Sometimes I almost screamed over, Hey, nice club. You know, whatever the guy's name was, the caddy. Right. right so, right. but I decided not to thank God because we got to eight T box and I'm like, Hey, what, what was up with, uh, Mr. Palmer hitting his shot in the, uh, in the pond back there. He's like, man, you won't believe it. He said to me, don't even tell me how far we are. Just give me the three wood. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he's he's still squash buckling at 80 years old. That's that's the best way that I could come up with it. Yeah. And then poor guy on hole number 10, there was like, who knows how many hundred people there just kind of surrounded waiting for him to make the turn. And, you know, everybody wants me to hit a good shot. And he, he rolled one down the left. It was, you know, wasn't that very very good of a shot and nobody said a word i mean it was like quiet as could be and he turns around and he goes the silence is deafening (laughs) (laughs) so you know it was it was just really one of those moments where where you know you you see things on and people on tv your whole life and you just you know you'll you'll never get a chance to meet them and then when they're there you're like you never want the day to end. One of his good friends was walking around taking pictures, and he got a picture of, of Arnie and I walking off the 17th tee box. And um, I'm looking at the picture right now. And and he got up and down out of Big Mouth on the 18th hole, which is a very large bunker, very deep on the right side. And it was a really long shot, and he probably hit about 
30 yard bunker shot flew about 25 yards and took a little check and uh knocked in the jug so that was my <laughs> my last memory of watching the guy hit a golf ball you've caddied in other uh events or you've caddied in other pro members at at seminole this is really becoming and actually it's always has been i'd imagine but it it just seems that more and more of these pros that play the Honda, you know, pop over to Seminole the day after, and you've just had your chance to be on some pretty incredible bags that you've mentioned. And, oh, yeah. And so <laughs> give me some of the names that you've either looped for or been in the same group. And, you know, just to kind of – I think it's interesting to hear your perspective, not as just a casual golf fan that's outside the ropes, but you're you're a, cat, a professional caddy you know, you know, you see good shots, you see bad shots all the time, you know how to differentiate. So um, who have you caddied for in some of these events? Let's see. I've caddied for Peter Jacobson. You know, he's a total, well, he's hilarious, first of all, and it's natural, yeah. you know. Um, one day I had Justin Rose in the morning. Sorry, I had uh, Dustin Johnson in the morning and Justin Rose in the afternoon. That's a pretty good day. Um, the sound that the ball makes is very different. You hear guys say it until you actually, Got you're standing three feet from them. Yeah. You know, and, um, complete gentleman, you know, one day I had Greg Norman and, um, I think he was putting it, he was putting me up to a test. Okay. How so? <laughs> I, I how swear so? he was. Well, we get to number two. He was a very nice guy, by the way. Number two, um, he's got about a buck 45 at the most. And, he pulls out his five iron. And I'm like chewing off my this is loop number two, by the way, that I've done that day for the pro member. So okay. I'm like I'm like chewing off my tongue, trying not to say anything because this guy has way too much club in his hand. Right. <laughs> but it's Greg Norman. It's Greg Norman. I just met I just met the guy an hour ago. So he takes his five iron and he goes, boop, and he hits this little Butt runner a thing up the hill on the ground ends up like 15 feet below the hole and i gave him his putter and he walks off like nothing ever happened and i thought to myself man i'm glad i didn't say anything and he's just waiting for you to say something too <laughs> i know he's just i'm sure he was laying a trap saying you know let's see how cool this kid thinks he is you know and i wouldn't i wouldn't phone for that one dude i mean i've i've seen some guys hit some weird shots but um he was, I'm sure he was baiting me, <laughs> but we got along good. And we started talking about the Spalding tour edition. And, um, oh my God. You that golf ball of course, oh my God. You're like bringing back every, you're bringing back stuff from my childhood. And when I started playing the game, like all that stuff that, I mean, I mean, my first golf lesson, like my first official golf lesson, no, no lie was me buying for, I think a nickel or a dime a piece back issues of golf digest at my neighbor's garage sale and i came yeah. home, and i came home with like 60 issues of golf digest from like the <laughs> mid to late 80s of tom watson had to hit the bump and run greg norman secrets of the sand jack nicholas how to you know hit the fade and that's how i that was my first official golf lesson and i just remember leafing, and i remember leafing through all those ads because this is when you know people actually bought you know magazines off of a newsstand i still yeah. remember all the uh you know the the links parallax 
and the Spalding. The Lynx Parallax, dude. That's what that's what Freddie Couples won. I, the, um, I know. On the Masters and, win. And the Cleveland VAS irons that Pavin won. I don't know how because it literally looked like a cheese grater attached to a stick. But, I mean, all that stuff and the Spalding Tour Edition and all that. You're bringing up all the stuff that I remember seeing the ads for. And, yeah, I remember all that stuff. What uh, so let me ask you this question. I'm listening to you talk. The listeners are, are are you know getting to know you through this podcast. Um what is it about a caddy at Seminole or Pine Valley that can make the make the guest feel comfortable, but also caddy for elite level amateurs at Pine Valley or touring professionals at the pro member at Seminole? What would you say is the characteristic that not only you have, but all these other elite caddies have to where you can be comfortable in any situation and get the trust of the player? A lot of it really has to do with the interaction that the caddy has with the member and how comfortable that that, that relationship seems to go in front of the guest. It's pretty easy to, I mean, mechanically, okay, every caddy at Pine Valley and Seminole knows more about golf than every one of their players it's it's pretty much assured you know whether or not they're a better player than each guy who knows but the the level of golf iq is just off the charts so that the mechanics is one thing but the the ability to adapt to each individual personality is the caddy's best attribute um there's a friend of mine named john mastone who i used to work with years ago at old memorial down in tampa and um Good God, he was 47 back in 97, so he's probably, who knows, whatever. Anyway, he um, he pontificated quite a bit, you know, about, you know, caddying and stuff like that. But he came up with a really good way to break the loop up into three parts. And it really has a lot to do with what you're talking about as far as the player feeling comfortable. The first six holes, you keep your mouth shut. Listen to all the guys in the group. Find out as much as you can about the guys in the group. Who's the alpha character? Who's there? You know, who's there? It, the guest might be the boss of the member. Right. That's very. <laughs> you know true. what I mean? Yeah. So, so you have to understand that dynamic sometimes before you start to, you know, let loose with whatever personality that you may want to turn off or turn on, or whatever. So that's the first six holes. Keep your mouth shut. Do your job. Have a good time. The next six holes. You know, out of pure old humanity, those guys will normally start to ask you some questions about yourself. You know, hey, where you're from? What do you do? And you can kind of, you know, get a little more into the, you know, the back and forth side of it. So by the time hole 13 gets there, you know, the conversation's rolling pretty much. You haven't gotten too deep, but you know exactly where to take each one of the conversations with each one of the guys, which guy to talk to, which guy to stay away from. Um, whether or not the whole group, you just stay away from them and have a good time with your caddy buddy. Right. You know, gives you always give the same information. You never change how you caddy the mechanics. I mean, I don't care if it's a if it's a junior golfer or if it's a tour player. He's still getting my best yardage, whether wind and uphill, downhill, and they're still getting my best read. Um, that's the beauty of being a professional when you do caddy is you choose to not not, you know, throw in the town, not to you know, dog it. And um, so the final six holes is what John Stone would call the orange crush. Okay. <laughs> because he's got like 
orange hair, bright orange, fire engine, red hair. So he would call that the orange crush. And this guy read like three newspapers a day and he could speak on any subject at any level. And he was, he was brilliant. So that's when he would totally just turn it on. And you know how much fun you can have with a group by the time you get the 13th fairway. So, you know, the first and foremost, the, the outcome of the day is that they enjoy themselves. You're not the show. Your, your, your information will be the show because if you have good information, then they'll, there will be a back and forth with you. But if your information stinks, then you'll just become kind of a bag toter to them and they won't really want to have you be a part of the loop as far as interaction. Right. There's a, uh, there's a little caddy company that I started years ago called GoCaddy.net, and there's a there's a description of caddy duties um, that uh, that I'll send to you, <laughs> and um, it's pretty pretty in depth. I mean, short and sweet. The quicker that they've got a club in their hand, then the more your hourly rate goes up. Exactly. They're there to have fun first, and you know the game is uh, you know it, it's sometimes gonna gonna rip them to shreds. They, they love saying that they came to Seminole and played Seminole and came to Pine Valley and played Pine Valley. And they love telling their friends that, you know, that they played there and they've been there. The, the, the playing part of it sometimes is the hardest part about it because the course is a little bit different. At Seminole, we have a stat there called Greens Visited in Regulation. Okay, so not Greens Hit in Regulation, it's Greens Visited in Regulation. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, so explain that one. Well, the... The course is designed by Donald Ross in 1929. And as you know, he did Pinehurst and a couple, you know, a bunch of other courses. But sure. the greens are somewhat shaped like domes. So they're upside down bowls of sorts. So the the playing area of the green is somewhat smaller than the actual surface area. And they're firm and it's windy. And you know, the one of the one of the protection sides of Seminole is the wind and the firmness and the link style of the golf course. If you don't hit a crisp golf shot that has a proper amount of spin, it probably won't stay on the green. And um, then in, in effect, you have now visited the green. <laughs> and then hopefully you'll visit only one more time. Exactly. So um, yeah. before we put it into, uh, before we wrap the episode up, um, not to single anyone out individually, but uh, you know the, the the membership, the the staff at Pine Valley, the staff at Seminole. I'm sure you have a good story about you know Charlie Radenbush has been the director of golf there at Pine Valley for for ages, and you know mm-hmm. the, pre- the president Jim Davis uh, has been there, and obviously the president of Seminole Jimmy Dunn. Um, do you have any stories about what they mean to you? and what they mean to the club that maybe you can share that might be a little bit different than, you know, just the typical caddy working relationship that you might have someplace else. I've been through, well, battling stuttering for a long time. I'm not sure how much, I guess the listeners have really picked up on it, but um, for years I went through speech therapy all through high school and, you know, it's, it's pretty much compensatory. You never really, you know, get rid of it. So there's always, it's always kind of like lurking in the weeds, you know? So, Whenever I give a number, sometimes as far as a yardage, um, number six and uh, say like seven, they'll be tough to get out. So one day I'm on a loop with uh, Mr. Dunn, and um, one of the players was um, <laughs> was up on the tee box, 
So the number he thought was that he heard wasn't the number that I set. So he had 10 more, basically he had more club in his hand than, than he was supposed to. Sure. And so he goes, is it one? And I went, no, it's 10 less. It's 10 less because I knew that at that time I had two tour pros standing over my, my, my left and right shoulder and Mr. Dunn was right next to me. Right. And the other member of the player was up on the tee box. So Mr. Dunn detected that I was not about to be able to get out the number that I needed to. Right. And it was about to, it was about to get a little weird, you know? So he pulls me aside right, like right up next to him by the waist. And he says, Hey, Fitz, it's playing the number. It's one, uh, 68, right? 168. So he looks over at me and he whispers in my ear, Jimmy Dunn does. And he goes, are you okay? And I went, no, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not okay. So we're going down the hole, part 317. And I had him and the other member like coaching me up, walking down towards the green and, you know, trying to bring me back up, you know, cause they saw that, that I was really having a rough moment. Yeah. And, um, you don't want to, I mean, that's not how I wanted to have, humanity be shown because you know there was actually a a struggle within it but the humanity that i saw out of those two guys was just you can't compare that to anything you know yeah because that's something that that just sounds like that's just something inherent in them and inherent in the culture there at Seminole and obviously at fine valley as well but absolutely but, man. That, but that's but also that's just golf too that's just you know you find that you find the best people in the game of golf it's a family there's no doubt it's a family so Mr. Davis, when I uh, broke my neck, um, he, uh, I was in North Carolina and, um, he had gotten word that I was in the hospital for a week. Three ribs were broken, tore my spleen, two punctured lungs, um, little scrape on my face. It looked like, <laughs> sorry, there was a scrape on my forehead and Adam Armagas came by with a, with a uh, little box of Old Bay for me. And he said that I look like Mikhail Gorbachev. <laughs> <laughs> He's leave all, it to your he, friends he's all hard isn't he <laughs> leave it to your friends you know but um so anyway um one of the other members who uh was down in the uh, southern pines area he was really good to me also and he um set me up for a couple of days after i got out of the hospital and then dropped me off at the airport in southern pines and jim davis came down to pick me up and flew me down to florida wow and um i mean you friends are worth way more than money <laughs> not much else you can say about that but that's that's just incredible that, uh, well it's not incredible it's just it's it sounds like that's that's what happens at that place well it's 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 their kind of reality because he has the means to be able to help somebody that's in need and he doesn't even doesn't even question it he just goes you know yeah and you know, I'm not, I'm not the only one with a great story about Jim Davis or Jimmy Dunn. That's oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. But I'm just lucky that I have one. Yeah. Well, you've shared a lot of great, fantastic stories, and um, you know, I, I just want to thank you. I want to thank, obviously, our friends, <laughs> our friends at Pine Valley and Seminole for, you know, kind of blessing this episode and, and allowing uh, us to kind of uh, share some stories about two very special places that a lot of people uh, would love to be able to play someday. 
um, you know, I enjoyed the time I had with you in, the, in May out on the course. Thanks for showing me around. And uh, hopefully I'll get to see you again uh, sometime soon on the golf course. And uh, actually, maybe we need to go play at some point. Yo, we're, we're going to get that done. All right, my friend. Well, thanks for, for sure. thanks for joining me here at the back of the range, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thank you very much, Ben, and you have a good rest of the day, man. Well, there you have it, folks. Special thanks to Serge Hogue. Special thanks to Seminole and Pine Valley for making this episode possible. Hoping to do it again soon sometime. Don't forget, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you again next week for another episode here at the back of the range.